You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. It'll put some upward pressure on everything from hydrogen fuel cells to uh, uh, solar and wind, even nuclear energy, which is going to win in any scenario, no matter who gets in. Uh, Because by and large, the people that Biden will have around him are going to be supportive of nuclear energy as the only reliable 24-7 source. I'm Bill Powers, and this is Mining Stock Education. Thank you for tuning in again today. We're going to be talking about commodity investing, the markets, where's the U.S. dollar going with Chris Temple of nationalinvestor.com. The first question I have for you, Chris, and thank you again for coming on the show, is in regards to your updated article that you put out about gold. This is not your father's gold market. And I should say, if you want this article, you can email Chris at Chris at nationalinvestor.com. And in regards to the updates that you did to this article, Chris, could you kind of take us through the updates and and why'd you do it? Yeah, sure, Bill. First of all, it's good to be back with you again. I always enjoy this. Um, You know, the the title is is half self-explanatory. This is not your father's gold market. There's an awful lot of differences with the gold market today and some other markets that typically would have behaved a certain way relative to gold in times past. There's differences between today and, for example, when you go all the way back to the 1970s where you had a huge move in gold and other commodities. Uh, Even more recently, there was a big secular run for all commodities where you had a melt-up in 2002 roughly uh, through 2008. Today is a little bit different. You know, gold, as we're recording this, is is maybe 7 or 8% off of its all-time high. Silver is still over 60% off its all-time high, even though you did just have a technical breakout in the silver price recently. Copper and other commodities have remained weak. And first of all, the reasons why those who are buying gold today are buying it are very different, and I explain all the ways that is true. Um, And secondly, when you look at at that particular point, who is driving the gold price higher, One of the points I make in this thing that's extremely important, especially for gold bugs out there to remember, is that gold's fate has never been more dependent than it is right now on generalist non-gold bug investors who sometimes come into the sector like a ball of fire and then they leave. And again, I explain all the reasons for that in this report, too. So, you know, it's it's a history lesson. It's a how to. And as you know, Bill, from from me, uh, I'm not religious when it comes to gold. Philosophically, I'm more of a gold bug than gold bugs are, but as a practical matter, I'm not. I think I have a better understanding of how markets work, when to zig and when to zag. And uh, further in this uh, issue, I give a half a dozen examples of specific companies that are already on my recommended list of here's the type of companies if you're a longer-term investor particularly, that you look at, here's the attributes. Everything from management, the ability to raise money, where their projects are, uh, and, and a whole bunch of other things. So it's part primer and part uh, several really good tips, in my opinion, if I may say so, uh, in the gold space. And, and again, folks can get a free copy of that just by emailing me. Chris, you're not a silver bull, but as you mentioned, silver has broken out. So what's your current thoughts on silver? Well, you know, I'm not a silver bull quite yet, but uh, back just in the last few weeks, I added a silver stocks trade 
to my recommended list for the first time since about 2011 when I had people heavily into both gold and silver. And as they were peaking, I told people to start selling. Unfortunately, everybody else wrote all of those things all the way back down. Silver, there's, there's two things. First of all, I think that the general environment of liquidity and the melt-up and price breakout in gold, when gold was able to finally punch through $1,775 an ounce, which had been a ceiling more or less for a while, that helped silver likewise, which had been capped about 1850 to $1,875 an ounce. It helped that to break out. And uh, even, you know, as gold has stalled a little bit, silver has still so showed some surprising strength. So liquidity is in your favor and the price momentum is in your favor. Uh, I still am a little bit halting about silver as opposed to gold, because if we do get some point sooner rather than later where this melt up in the stock market is concerned and it finally turns around meaningfully, either because of worries over how the election is going to turn out, China, which I've talked about a great deal this last week or so, um, or some other deflationary shoe drops. We get a lot more renewed lockdowns like we've had in recent days in California or all, of, all or most of the above. Uh, I still question whether silver can continue to move higher with gold or maybe even both of them if we were to finally get an overdue sharp correction again in the stock market. That remains to be seen. In no way am I believing we were going to get anything like when precious metals got annihilated in late February and early March, even worse than the overall market. Um, but the pattern could be the same. So with silver, especially in lesser so with gold, the trading positions I've added on both of those in the recent past based on those price breakouts, I've got them on a real short leash and I won't hesitate to uh, turn right around and get right back out of them for a while if I see those dangers materialize. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Osino Resources is a Ross Beattie-backed gold exploration company in mining-friendly Namibia. Osino's district-scale land package is situated near two producing gold mines, one of which Osino's management team previously developed and sold to B2 Gold. Osino's founders and management are experienced mining professionals who have already successfully developed and sold two companies in the past seven years. Osino has a tight share structure, and with its current treasury, it can self-fund the advancement of its gold discovery into at least 20 2022. This is an exploration company with drills turning that you'll definitely want to pay attention to. Osino trades in New York under the ticker O-S-I-I-F and in Toronto under the ticker O-S-I. To learn more, go to OsinoResources.com. That's OsinoResources.com. When you're initiating a position in a junior gold or silver equity, do you like to do it primarily for the thrill of exploration or because of leverage to an increasing precious metals price? Well, I do it for both. And sometimes those two, sometimes those two go together. Um, you know, the exploration plays uh, are always the one where you get the biggest bang for your buck if you're right and you pick the right company or you bet on the right jockey as far as management is concerned. I've got a couple examples of that in that special gold issue. And I also talk about a couple of the larger exploration companies with big deposits, but that still have some leverage to a, a rising gold price. You know, one of the things that a lot of investors learn the hard way, Bill, I'd say over the last decade or so, is that it isn't necessarily automatic that a rising gold price lifts all boats, because one of the comments I make in this special issue is that gold companies are companies too. 
And at some point, especially if you're a producing company, you've got to have decent enough revenues. You've got to have positive net earnings. Some of them maybe if you got enough cash flow and earnings, you pay a dividend. Um, you know, the poster child for how not to do things for a lot of years was the former Gold Corp, which a lot of people took to calling Gold Corps after a while. And that stock, when you go back to when the bull market and gold was first getting started, that stock was 10 or 11 bucks a share. Later, with the gold price at $1,300 and Newmont bottom, guess where Gold Corp's share price was? 10 or $11 a share. You made absolutely nothing for a decade on Gold Corp stock while the gold price tripled. And that's the worst example, but there's been a lot of other ones. But uh, I have to say that to a very great extent, the industry has started to get its act together. You've got this watchdog group that John Paulson, the hedge fund manager, started there a couple or three years ago to kind of police the industry, demand more accountability. Uh, they're, they're blowing the whistle on the lifestyle companies out there that are better at mining investors than they are at mining gold. And so a lot of the excesses and stupidity, I think, has been wrung out of the price, you know, the, the companies. Uh, and I mean, even good one. You know, look what Barrick did at the peak of the market uh, 9, 10, 11 years ago. Uh, they had to get rid of a lot of assets that they never should have bought in the first place. They overpaid for them. Other companies did too. And sometimes that happens, you know, in, in this kind of a cyclical and sometimes wildly cyclical industry where it's feast or famine, you know, after a lot of lean years and you're, you're, you're pinching pennies, then all of a sudden you get a bullish move for a few years or several years in your commodity and you're in fat city and and you, you feel like you're king of the world and bulletproof. You buy everything in sight and then you regret it later on. So a lot of that's been wrung out. There's some really good stories among intermediate producers, and, and, and the majors are in much better shape today than they were for a while because they've gotten rid of a lot of those assets they overpaid for. They've hunkered down during that cyclical bear market for gold, you know, when it dropped from 1920 an ounce to 1,050 an ounce. Now it's going back in the other direction, but everybody is being more judicious now, including people putting money in. And this to me, and this is the biggest difference, and I explain this in demographics and everything, Bill, in, in this is not your father's gold market. There is a really good development that I have seen in the recent past where there's a lot of money available right now for exploration that's coming out of the woodworks, you know, in almost the last year or so. I've seen so many companies, one of them specifically I mentioned in this special issue, a company that a year ago said that, well, we're just going to drop back and punt for a while. And, and you know, we're going to have to sit on our project as great as it is because we don't want to go out and raise money at these prices. They've had two major capital raises since then. The latest one they closed out and in, in two days, and the CEO told me in 20 years, I've never had money come in the door that fast. So one of the things to keep in the back of your mind, folks, if you're out there looking at these little companies researching these junior gold stocks, if you have anybody today in you know summer of 2020 when we're in a new bullish move and there's a lot of money being put to work, if anybody dares to say to you, well, gee, we got a good project, but it's still a tough market. We can't raise money. There's a reason they can't raise money, because if their project was worth a darn, 
they'd have it. Or it could just be incompetent or incapable management too. That too. What about oil? If you're looking at oil producers, you shared how you view the gold producers. Are there any good buys right now in the oil producers? I think there's a handful, but look, this the, the whole catharsis bill that the energy industry is going through is only just getting restarted. It was starting to get going in earnest back in 2015 and 16. Bankruptcies were starting and and their creditors bailed them out. This time around, the Fed, either directly or indirectly, is bailing out some of them. But look, this is an industry that is not going to go away tomorrow or next year or a decade from now, but it has peaked. And now, even though you've had some help on a production front uh, with the OPEC cuts having taken some decent hold in the U.S., production has dropped three and a half million barrels a day, I think is a number now from its peak. Uh, the demand is still problematic, uh, especially with these virus numbers, legitimate or illegitimate not, doesn't matter, it's the perception. So the demand for oil and refined products is not coming back as fast as it's going to, or some people thought it was going to, I'm sorry. So I, I think that for a number of years to come, there's going to be bankruptcies still. We've seen a lot of them already. Chesapeake, the biggest one lately. There is going to, of course, they were more gas than oil, but it's still going to hit the natural gas companies too. Pipeline companies are on their back foot because of a couple recent court rulings. If uh, Joe Biden is elected president as opposed to Trump, there will be more pressure on them. Uh, they're going to all have to renegotiate their contracts. You're going to have force majeure declared everywhere, like on some recent oil and LNG exports, both where that has happened recently. So the story is still one of way too much production and production capacity that still needs to be destroyed to meet the diminished demand levels of years to come. Along the way, are there going to be some great deals among individual companies? No question about it. I'm looking at one right now in the middle of the U.S. Um, where a company that's got a lot of cash is going out there and they're going to be able to buy assets on fi for fire sale prices. So that's where you want to take a peek, folks. If you're a long-term investor, you want to take a little bit of risk. You understand that we're not all going to be driving electric vehicles next year, even 10 years from now. But the stress that this industry is going through, and we've seen it before in other assets, whether it's gold, silver, or whatever, there's going to be a lot of really good projects. There's going to be a lot of good pipelines. There's going to be a lot of good infrastructure that's going to be bought by smart people that have got some money for pennies on a dollar in the next several years. That's where you're going to make your best money in the energy space. The presidential polls, if they can be, be believed, are pointing to a Biden presidency, but of course they also pointed to a Hillary Clinton presidency in 2016, which didn't happen. But with that being said, with Biden's platform that he's recently put out there, it's not looking good for oil. Do you think the market has factored in a potential Biden presidency at all? I don't know that it's done that to any great extent. Um, I think if we get closer to election day and people see that, it will put some pressure on conventional energy assets. It'll put some upward pressure on everything from hydrogen fuel cells to uh, uh, solar and wind, even nuclear energy, which is going to win in any scenario, no matter who gets in. Uh, because by and large, the people that Biden will have around him are going to be supportive of nuclear energy as the only full, you know, reliable 24-7 source of uh, carbon emission-free 
energy. So um, we'll see. But that, that uh, I don't think at this point in time here in the middle of July that people have given it too terribly much thought yet as far as uh, energy is concerned. You invest in lithium equities. And here in the States, when you're looking at lithium equities, do you factor at all whether a Democrat or Republican is going to be in uh, making law or be president? Does Do you think that affects the lithium market as much as it would the oil market? No, because that's another thing I would say even more so than uranium that is going to win no matter who is in the White House and in Congress this year. You know, you've got two major themes here that are coalescing around lithium. And I've only got two lithium stocks on my list. And I'll even give everybody out there a bonus and tell you the names because these things, you're stealing them, buying them where they're at right now. One is Frontier Lithium, FL, on the Toronto uh, Venture Exchange. They've got one of the best uh, low iron technical grade deposits, the new deposits in the world up in extreme Northwest Ontario. The other that you're referring to is Piedmont Lithium that's in the tin spodumene belt in central, uh, south central North Carolina. Um, they've got a tremendous asset, lots of infrastructure there. And the biggest reason for them, not only because they're, they've developed a substantial lithium resource and they're bringing on the processing plants now in a part of the area in the southeast where Tesla, Volkswagen, uh, lots of other players have got uh, electric vehicle uh, facilities they're building. They're building entire plants just for batteries in the southeast U.S. But the big theme about that, and you've heard recently that Joe Biden, to try and get elected, is mimicking this. In fact, Trump made fun of him the other day that, well, he's plagiarized Neil Kinnock and John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. He might as well plagiarize Donald Trump because he rolled out this uh, Buy America program here several days ago that's a carbon copy of Trump saying bring all of our manufacturing and supply chains back to the U.S. And so when you've got a company like Piedmont uh, in the U.S. with great economics, great infrastructure, it's a no-brainer no matter which of these nitwits is president for the next four years because that's the future. And it's a stock that you're stealing right now buying it. Copper's knocking on $3 a pound. How will copper be affected by the outcomes of the election, do you think? That's a that's a tougher question, Bill, because copper, long term for the green economy, so I would say copper might fare a hair bit better uh, in that sense under a Biden because he's going to be more friendly to the faster buildup in the U.S. of the green economy and electric vehicles uh, than than arguably Trump would be. But look, copper's biggest problem being the main arbiter of the strength of the global economy. You know, it had a price breakout at long last recently, but it's had many failed price breakouts in the last several years. Uh, Part of its breakout recently was courtesy of China stocking up at low prices because their print money is fast over there as the Fed is in the U.S. to try and keep all the balls in the air and keep deflation at bay. But at some point, and this is the thing you got to keep in the back of your mind with base metals and commodities generally, okay? In 2002 through 2008, the period I mentioned earlier, when there wasn't anything that didn't go up, 
I mean, oil went to $140. Copper was $4 and some change, maybe $5 a pound. Gold got up for the first time to $1,000 an ounce before it fell back. Silver was up. Everything was up. And it was because you not only had the monetary stimulus and back then most of that time a tailwind from a weak U.S. dollar, which all else being equal supports commodity prices, but you also had a demonstrable major demand driver in the form of China, which, you know, for a stretch back in those years, as one uh, commentator described it, they were building the equivalent of the city of Houston every month in that country. Now, as a result of that, they overbuilt. You got a lot of ghost cities over there. You got a lot of infrastructure that hasn't been used yet, and there's a limit to that. So going forward, China is very unlikely to be the demand driver for copper or anything else going forward. And so you got to ask yourself, what will be? Because, you know, these metals aren't going to just magically and automatically go up based only on money printing unless there's some narrative driving demand on the ground. And in my opinion, Bill, the only thing of substance that's going to move the needle much on that because economies the world over are already choking on debt. You, there's only so much more they can grow. Emerging markets where you arguably outside of China, like in India and some other ones, where you might have a repeat of what we saw with China before, their currencies are messes. They've got problems, whether it's with this virus pandemic or uh, governance or whatever, it's not going to happen there. So what needs to happen, and this needs to happen for reasons other than commodities, by the way, to keep the whole fractional reserve uh, skyscraper of cards uh, aloft for a little while longer, is governments, especially of major nations, need to embark on massive infrastructure programs. In the U.S., that would ideally take the form of the government coming out, and it's not going to happen until after the election, but the government comes out next year and says, all right, we're going to commit two or three or four trillion dollars over 10 years. Uh, part of that money is going to be the seed money and anchor of one or more infrastructure banks. Those infrastructure banks will work between the government and Wall Street. Of course, Wall Street will be a big part of this. And they'll go in there, as they've done over the years, with mortgages and real estate and other things. And they'll slice and dice and securitize all of this and turn that $4 trillion into a whole lot more in the way of infrastructure spending. That and only that do I see possible ahead of us, and again, not until after the election, to really turn trades that we have right now into these other commodities into more investable longer term themes. So what are we going to be at, like $60 trillion worth of debt then in uh, 2024? <laughs> Who knows? I mean, uh, you know, we'll just we'll just keep adding zeros to all this. You know, the, we need to have an overhaul of our monetary system. We need to have social credit, not a Federal Reserve run currency. Um, they, they don't want to give up control. Nobody in Washington is brave enough to demand that we get rid of the Federal Reserve. So it's all going to be in a form of debt one way or the other. But they've got interest rates down to nothing, so it hurts relatively less going forward. And they'll find ways to bleed off parts of it here and there um, through uh, haircuts on debts and things like that. So we, we can, you'd be surprised how much more we can plot along with the same course. You know, if I'd have said to you, Bill, maybe I've used this example before. If I'd have said to you 
back in 1980, 40 years ago, right after I first got in this business, we had double-digit interest rates, double-digit inflation. The stock market, the Dow Jones average, had struggled to get up to 1,000 and keep going. Uh, it would get up there and fall, get up there and fall. And we were about to, to register our first $1 trillion in federal debt. And this was all amid predictions that the U.S. was on the edge of falling off a cliff and we were going to end up like Bolivia and Argentina and Brazil and everybody back then with triple-digit interest rates, triple-digit inflation, currency collapses, and so forth. If I'd have said to you in that context that, you know, 40 years from now, you and I are going to be talking, instead of $1 trillion, the national debt that they admit will be 25 or $26 trillion. The Dow Jones average, instead of crashing into oblivion, will be also around 26,000. Interest rates and inflation will be a fraction of what they are today. They won't soar because of all of this debt money being printed. And furthermore, even with long-term treasuries at 1% or 2%, the whole world will be fighting over putting their money into U.S. debt. Now, you would have called Happy Acres and had them send a rubber truck for me. But that's where we are. So they can... They can play extend and pretend, but it's going to take something massive, you know, not just more throwing money at people for a temporary period of time. They have to do something that within their fractional reserve system means something systemically to it to give it the ability for a whole new play toy when it comes to credit creation and securitizing that and everything. And I believe that what is coming in that regard, if they have any brains, will be uh, this infrastructure gambit. Which is good for commodities, like you said. It will be very good. It'll be good. And it's going to be saleable. That's the important thing that I think these people know, because... You know, we've had these crises, you know, in 2001 and two, and then in 2008 especially, and, and everybody is sick of the Fed printing money and all of it going to Wall Street. I even had to listen the other day on CNBC to Grover Norquist. You know who he is? Yeah, the tax guy. Yeah, Grover Norquist is a guy who is one of the most vociferous anti-big government, anti-tax uh, libertarian people. And this guy's on TV explaining how his foundation took a couple million bucks in his PPP money. Okay. So everybody is sick. And I hate to pick just on him because it isn't just him. Everybody that's big gets bigger at a time like this and they get richer. And what did the average American get out of this? One check for 1200 bucks a person and a little bit of unemployment. Okay. So the other thing that's important when they roll out, and I say when, not if, when they get their act together under new government in next year and put together this infrastructure effort, you watch. The big sales pitch is going to be that finally, finally, we've got credit creation and banking stuff that's going to benefit Joe Sixpack and Sally Housewife or Sally Soccer Mom. It's not going all to Wall Street this time. We're doing this and creating these zillions of dollars to rebuild our roads, bridges, schools, power grid, uh, you name it. And uh, the end result is not that Wall Street gets rich. It's that somebody, instead of delivering pizzas or being unemployed or driving an Uber or whatever, now he's out laying block. Now he's out running electrical wires or fiber optic wires. Now he's out building towers. Now he's rebuilding schools and hospitals. That's what we're going to get. That's that's positive, and I hope I hope you're right because even with this last bailout, when they're they're buying what uh, junk bonds and all these things, aren't they bailing out Wall Street in the process? <laughs> of course they are, and everybody knows it. 
you know, and 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 yeah, the, and this is what I mean. The Fed needs to do this. It's an entirely different discussion over why the Fed has no choice but to focus first on bailing out Wall Street uh, up until now. Chris's website is nationalinvestor.com. And as you can hear, Chris is a walking encyclopedia of investment knowledge. So if you want to subscribe to his letter or find out more, go to nationalinvestor.com. He gives specific stock picks in various sectors, general equities, mining sector, as you've heard, as well as market commentary. And he also engages his subscribers over email. Chris's email is Chris. C-H-R-I-S at nationalinvestor.com. Chris, as always, thanks for coming on today's show. Bill, my pleasure. You take care, and I'll look forward to visiting again. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.